it's another week. This is Andrew Wood. Thank you so much for tuning in, whether that be live over at Joy620 or you're listening to the podcast. That's uh, where, every, everywhere, that's where, that's where you can listen to it. <laughs> Google Play, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, wherever podcasts are found, you can find this show. We are grateful that you are tuning in as we continue to, to have a lot to talk about. You know, that's one thing about where we are currently in our society, in our culture. There isn't a lack of information uh, to discuss. And today I want to talk in, uh, I told you last week, I, I, I was going to read a book uh, about the two, how important it is to have a mom and a dad in a home with children. As you know, the book came out last Tuesday. I had to do some traveling last week. So I was on a plane uh, for a few hours and, uh, and I finished the book because I wanted to First off, I thought the topic was uh, relevant to, to what I do every single day and relevant to this show. And, and so uh, I'll, I'll briefly walk through that with you and, and look at some things that I think is important. But I want to start with this study over Institute for Family Studies, and it's entitled Lazy Dads, The Reckoning. Uh, and it's interesting, and, and the author says this, back in 2019, I wrote a provocative piece for this blog called The Myth of the Lazy Father. I drew attention to something that had irked me. As a husband and a father for a long time, repeatedly, researchers had shown that for married couples with kids in the modern U.S., total work time was pretty equitable between spouses when paid work and home were combined. Indeed, if anything, dads work a little more. And yet, the narrative always ran in the other direction, focusing on the particular types of work where moms shouldered more of the burden, such as childcare and ignoring the possibility that couples' division of labor might simply reflect the varying preferences of men and women. Digging deeper into the American Time Use survey, I showed that total work time was remarkably equal even among couples where both worked or both worked full-time, contrary to notions of a second shift for working moms. That breadwinners tended to work more than stay-at-home parents, and in finding, indeed embarrassing to men, that stay-at-home moms worked way more than stay-at-home dads. As I noted, and my critics emphasized, there are many nuances to this issue and the measurement of work time. For instance, time is classified by primary activity, so if a parent watches TV while the kids play upstairs, that doesn't count as child care time. But these data job poorly with simple narratives of oppressive patriarchy, at least within married couples and on average. It's time for a follow-up. My earlier piece combined... Data from 2013 to 2017, but now we have numbers through 2022. By applying the same methods, uh, the author of this piece used previously to every available year, he's extended the analysis through the post-pandemic years. And, uh, and then here's what, what they found. Uh, the, the study asked respondents to write down exactly what they did on a single day. And the Bureau of Labor Statistics has a classification system for grouping these responses into activity types, which include traveling to activities in question. Uh, as they did in 2019, they added up total work, including employment, caring for household members, shopping, and household activities like cleaning and yard work, and then multiply the daily minutes by 760 to ep estimate weekly hours. Here's the broadest possible look at the data. Take all married moms and dads with minor kids, calculate their average total work time in every single year, and plot them against each other in an epic two-decade showdown of the sexes. And they set up shaded areas so that when they don't overlap, the differences are considered statistically significant. 
The previous result is pretty consistent. The totals are fairly even, and if anything, dads work a little more. One noticeable pattern, though, is that the Great Recession reduced the total work time of dads, but not moms. Something else they found surprising, even though the peak pandemic months are not covered, is that recent years don't show too sharp a break with previous trends. Of course, as in previous analysis, the total numbers mask a lot of differences in terms of division of labor, with women working less for pay and being more likely to stay at home with kids entirely. And, and the article goes further, and I'll put it in the show notes, but I think it's important that we look at that there's a trend in a conversation right now, and I think in large part due to the the book that, that has been released because it's gotten a lot of publicity is the two-parent privilege. Uh, and and it's interesting to me that it took a secular economist. Now, she may be a person of faith. I'm not completely sure. Judging by the way she talks and the, what, she, what she talks about, I think she probably is a person of faith. But again, she wrote the book not from a biblical worldview, but from a secular worldview and from uh, an economist worldview, so a lot at the numbers. And, and so because of that, the New York Times wrote a piece on it that we featured here. The, uh, a lot more folks are talking about it. She went on a podcast called uh, uh, Freakonomics, where they talk about the economy and e economics. And so she has gotten a lot of publicity as of late. So therefore, some of these studies that have been done more of a uh, a biblical worldview are now getting more traction and, and getting more conversation. And so as we think about the benefits of a two-parent home, one of the benefits, uh, one of the many benefits, is the ability to delegate responsibilities. Right? So, so right now I am recording this show, and there is someone... And that someone is my spouse watching the children at home, right? And then my wife is going to be going out of town this weekend, and I'll be able to watch a couple of the kids, and she's taking a couple kids with her for the weekend. And so these are things that we're able to do and make decisions together and divvy up the, the responsibilities within the home. If one parent is sick, the other parent can, can pick up. If if one parent has a job that is taking them out of state or taking them on the road or needs a little extra time, then the other parent is there to step in. If one parent is gifted in the kitchen and one parent is gifted in yard work, guess what? You take on those responsibilities and you make it happen. And so it is not a, uh, a shocking thing to say that a two-parent home is a benefit to the family. It's not a shocking and, and crazy thing to say that a two-parent home is a benefit to society, yet we find our society saying otherwise. And, and, and another reason I wanted to talk about this, too, is that marriage is important. Now, that book would say, the two-parent privilege would say, well, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be a married couple. It could be uh, two people living together. Now, they would even go as far as saying, we're not going to dive into is marriage between a man and a woman and is that beneficial for children. Look, this is a, this is a show that bases everything on biblical worldview. So what I am going to say is the best case scenario is a mom dad married living in a home together with their children. That is best case scenario. Why is that? Because that's the way God structured it and ordained it 
in the garden. That is the structure. And so as we think about how our culture is de-linked the high ideas of God, like marriage, faith, and family, then, then we understand that in order to turn things right side up, right? So, so sin has turned everything upside down. So in order to turn things right side up, we have to get to a place where we're saying that, that marriage matters, that, that mom, dad, and the home matters. And I think I briefly mentioned this last week, but Al Mohler phrases it this way. They, the, the, the liberal elites that we are seeing uh, pontificate about how marriage doesn't matter and husband and wives don't matter and, you know, I am woman, hear me roar. I don't need a man in my life. I can do this. I can do that. The reality is those folks believe left. So what that means is they have a, a leftist worldview, but they live right. Now, what does Moeller mean by that? They believe left, so they believe I'm woman, hear me roar. I don't need a man. I don't need, there are no gender roles. We can't even define what a man and a woman is. Just do whatever you want to do. Don't have kids, have kids, it doesn't matter. And then they live in a different way. Now, what is that different way that they live? They live a traditional family system, meaning those same people that are, that are spouting that nonsense live in a home with their spouse, raising their children. That is what we see. We see it across the board, though. We, we have folks that, that, are, that are arguing in opposition to school choice. We have folks that are literally leading student or uh, teacher unions across this country that are, that are leading on school boards for public schools that are leading against school choice Yet they have their children in charter schools. Yet they have their children in some of the best private schools. Why? Because they live, they they believe left and live right. And in the same way, we see this in the family structure in our society, where we say there are no gender roles. There's there's a data point in the book. And again, I'll I'll link to the book in the show notes. But there's a data point. In 1960, I want you to hear this. In 1960, 5% of children were born to single-parent homes. 1960, 5% of children were born to single-parent homes. Do you know what that number is in 2019? Almost 50% of children are born to single-parent homes. Now, you're going to listen to that, and you're going to say, well, that's because of teen pregnancy. No, no, it's not. Actually, teen pregnancy is lower now than it has been in the history of our country since we started collecting that data. Teen pregnancy is lower today than it's ever been. So it's not because of teen pregnancy. And it's actually not because of divorce, folks, either. It is folks choosing not to marry and still choosing to have a child. And so even the secular folks are saying, look, we, we have a problem on our hands. And, 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 and I've talked about this before. I, I've, for a long time, I would argue and debate with folks. I'll, I'll put the Bible on the shelf. I'll put my biblical worldview on the shelf, and we'll just debate this from a, from a practical, scientific, 
data viewpoint. I'm not doing that anymore. That's nonsense because I'm not going to put the Bible in my in, in God's authority on the shelf. But but it is interesting when secular folks start to look around and go, "Hey, in order for for this thing to keep moving and this thing, I'm meaning society and culture, we need to at the very least be able to replace those that are dying." Now that sounds callous, but that's how a society works. Right, so, so we have to have a ratio, kid-to-adult ratio, that as older folks retire, as older folks pass on, there needs to be younger folks that are, that are stepping in and taking the place. Now, now, from a biblical perspective, I'm not saying taking their place as if they didn't exist, but what I'm saying in a workplace perspective, we need people to, to take those jobs. In a retirement perspective, whether it be Social Security or pension plans, what do you need? You need people to work in order for you to pay the retirement plans to those that have worked before you. In order for society to continue, there has to be a a replacement model. Now, some would say, well, that's why we have immigration, Right. And that's why we that's the but no, no, because if you look at the numbers, that's not even factoring in because it, it's not like we're, we're just immigrating children. That's not the case. And so from a from a societal level, from us, from a cultural level, we have to be doing what we can to keep this ball rolling down the field. But instead, what we've done is we've said, yeah, you know, don't have babies. Don't get married. And so we, we find ourselves in a moment where even economists and secular folks are going, look, folks, this is not good. It's not good for our children. It's not good for our prisons. It's not good for our society. It's not good for retirement. It's not good for our military. I sat down with my granddaddy over the weekend and we talked about the woes of the military. Why? Because their recruitment levels are down. Why is that? Well, part of that is we, we don't have the, the bodies to do that. So it affects everything. We'll talk more when we come back. So as we continue the conversation, look, I know that over the last little bit, I focused, uh, and by little bit, I mean like, I don't know, the last six months or so, I focused quite a bit on marriage, on identity, on, and, and, and the reason why I've done that is because that, it affects everything. And it's also what we are currently seeing in our, in our current cultural crisis. I've been speaking a lot over uh, the last few weeks. I, I've, I've traveled, and I was in Illinois last week, and I was in Middle Tennessee uh, last week. I'll be in Utah this, uh, this weekend speaking about the issue of life and why that matters. And everywhere I go and everywhere I'm speaking, I'm doing so from a biblical worldview because we are losing that mindset. We're losing it. But what I'm finding is when I go speak to these room of hundreds of people, they're hungry for the truth. It doesn't matter if I'm preaching a sermon on a Sunday or I'm speaking to a group on a Thursday night. They're hungry for truth. They can look around themselves and and their culture and see that that there's a problem at hand. 
And so if we see that, then we should engage and, and, and desire to see a difference be made. And, and so as we, as we look at what's happened in our society and in our country, uh, recently, last Friday, uh, Diane Feinstein passed away. Senator Feinstein died on Friday, first elected to the U.S. Senate in 1992. The California Democrat was the longest-serving female senator in American history. As Christians, we should all grieve the passing of any human being. We can even respect the dedication she made to her country. But in our solemn respect at the passing of any human being, we should not let the media rewrite the story of who she was as a politician, a progressive stalwart whose convictions were on the opposite side of biblical values. This piece is over at World News, uh, World Opinions, and I will, again, link to it in the show notes. Coverage of her death has emphasized uh, her moderation. It said this, U.S. Senator Feinstein of California, centrist Democrat and champion of liberal causes, reads the lead of the Associated Press story of her passing. According to the New York Times, she called herself a political centrist. The L.A. Times declared that she was considered a moderate Democrat. The Washington Post headline blared that the centrist stalwart of the Senate dies at 90. This from the same paper that described terrorist Islamic State leader uh, al-Baghdadi as an austere religious scholar. Now the question is, was this senator truly a centrist lawmaker? Well, the answer to that is no, not at all. Soon after her election to the Senate, she became a leading advocate of the 1994 federal assault weapons ban. After the lapse of the ban, she repeatedly introduced reauthorizations and other gun control measures. Uh, she often referenced the murders of gay rights icon Harvey Milk and San Francisco Mayor George uh, Moscone as an inspiration for her fight against the Second Amendment rights. She served as president of San Francisco's Board of Supervisors at the time of the killings and succeeded uh, Moscone as mayor. In July... Feinstein celebrated the delivery of the U.S. Navy's newest ship uh, that they named Harvey Milk in a fitting final act of the LGBTQ advocacy that spanned her career. She introduced the so-called Respect for Marriage Act in 2011, which guaranteed federal recognition of same-sex marriage and repealed the Defense of Marriage Act before the Windsor and Oberfield decisions legalizing same-sex marriage. Uh, she was one of the only 14 senators to vote against the Defense of Marriage Act in 1996. She voted against President Clinton's don't ask, don't tell policy and was a lead advocate of its repeal in 2010. Not to be outdone, Planned Parenthood affiliates of California, President and CEO Jody Hicks celebrated uh, the senator, stating she stood strongly alongside Planned Parenthood providers and patients to protect the right of women and others to control their bodies. Uh, she regularly scored 100 on Planned Parenthood Action Fund and NARAL Pro-Choice America's legislative scorecards. She scored a hundred. There's very few senators or reps that would score a hundred on a pro-life card that claimed to be super conservative. And this senator scored a hundred on the abortion scorecard. In March of this year, she was an original co-sponsor of the Women's Health Protection Act, federal legislation that would guarantee unrestricted access to abortion and override state abortion regulations. She also uh, held some unpopular views among the Democrats. It was not until 2018, for example, that she reversed her decade of support for the death penalty. 
At the time, she was facing a primary challenge for, from the left. Perhaps no single moment embodies the differing perceptions of the senator's politics more than a remark she made during the 2017 Court of Appeals confirmation hearing of Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, Feinstein quoted Barrett, a devout Roman Catholic, about the ways her faith would influence her work as a judge. She said this, Why is it that so many of us on this side have this very uncomfortable feeling that, you know, dogma and law are two different things? And I think whatever religion it is, it has its own dogma. The law is totally different. And I think in your case, Professor, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large number of peoples have fought for years in this country. For conservatives, the questioning confirms the image of the senator as a progressive Democrat more than willing to sideline religiously based viewpoints, one who is often on the cutting edge of liberal politics, increasingly at odds with traditional American values inspired by Christian faith. Now, the article goes on and on and on, and, and what I would say is, it's okay to have a discussion about a senator after they pass away on their policies and the legacy they leave behind. Now, it's also okay to say that, that if she was the longest female-serving senator in the history of this country. That is a milestone. But she pushed an agenda and a thought and a worldview that was anti-Christian and anti-gospel. And so it is okay to have that conversation. And, and it's, it's baffling to me. Now, now, granted, you could argue, well, the Washington Post and the New York Times call her a centrist because to them, she was. To the left... She may very well be a centrist, but to conservatives that have a biblical worldview, she was no centrist on any issue. And, and she spent her legacy fighting for and advocating for things that are anti-gospel, things that are anti-biblical worldview things that are anti-life, anti-traditional values, anti-natural family. So, so are we to celebrate that mindset? Are we to celebrate that viewpoint? I mean, I, I don't think so. Now, now, so as we have these conversations, we have to have ourselves... A look at, does biblical worldview matter or not? Now, they would say, well, when you go vote, when you involve yourself in, in politics, you need to put Jesus on the shelf. You need to put your worldview on the shelf. Well, that's nonsense, because guess what, folks? When they go vote, when they walk into the halls of the Senate and they cast their vote, they're not putting their belief system on the shelf. No, of course not. It's as we've said on this show multiple times. Every institution is a theocracy. It just depends on who the theo is. And, 
And, and so when we have these conversations and these debates, I'm all for doing so in a way that is not rude. But but also I'm I'm in for having those conversations and debates and ones that would hold up the good ideas of God. Unapologetically so. And pushing for abortion on demand and pushing to redefine marriage is not a biblical worldview and it's certainly not something that we're going to celebrate. And so as we have these conversations, as we look at those who are elected officials, these are things that, that should matter to us. We'll talk more when we come back. As we continue the conversation, I'm now going to do something I don't normally do. I'm going to cite an article from the great CNN. <laughs> and so I just want to preface that. But there's a reason why there's an article over at CNN that I want us to look at. Because what I don't want to do is talk about the topic I'm about to talk about. And you'd be like, well, you pulled that from Life News or you pulled that for some right wing organization. No, I'm going to look at it from CNN, and then I'm going to dissect it and, and help you understand and help us understand what is going on. California Attorney General announced Thursday that his office has filed a lawsuit against two organizations that operate crisis pregnancy centers, saying the organizations used fraudulent and misleading claims about a procedure they claim can reverse medication abortion. The complaint alleges that Heartbeat International and Real Options misled patients by claiming there is a way to reverse the effects of mifepristone, the first, two, the first of two oral drugs used for medically induced abortions through a process they call abortion pill reversal. Uh, the Attorney General alleges both companies know there is no evidence showing the protocol works, is safe, or is effective, but they keep promoting and advertising it to patients. According to the complaint, the organizations direct a patient to take high doses of progesterone within 72 hours of taking mifepristone to reverse the effects of mifepristone. Of course, Heartbeat operates more than 2,000 pregnancy resource centers in the U.S. Real Options operates five clinics in California. Uh, now, I want, I want to just give you some uh, clarity on what is happening. Colorado is doing this as well, and, and we're going to see other blue states do this. So, so even in the article, and I'll put it in the show notes, even in the article, you'll see they put reversal in quotes, and they put all these things in quotes to act like it's not happening. I, I spoke at an event in, in Federal, Tennessee, last week, in Middle Tennessee, and they shared a video at the event of a young lady and a young man who were faced with an unplanned pregnancy, that young lady drove to Virginia, was put, in, I, I want you to hear this, was put in a room with a bunch of other young ladies where they all took their abortion pills together. Now, does that sound like healthcare to you? Now, my wife is currently pregnant. When she goes for an ultrasound, do they put all the women in the same room together and everybody just has a big old group ultrasound? Of course not, because that would be ridiculous. But they put all these young ladies in a room together. It's almost as if they're saying this will be peer pressure. All of you will take these pills. They put them all in a room together and they all took that first pill, mifepristone. Now, now for some of you, you're like, I don't, what is mifepristone? What is that? What are, what are abortion pill abortions? What, what does that look like? You take that first pill and it starves the baby. It cuts off progesterone. Your body 
naturally produces progesterone. If you have a good chance, if you found yourself pregnant again, the OB gave you progesterone. Why? Because we want to create a healthy environment for baby growing inside of you. My wife was given progesterone after we had a miscarriage. Why? To keep the pregnancy going. OBs have done this for years and for decades, and they say, well, that's not the proper use of the drug. It has been used off-label for this for decades. And so then a pro-life doctor said, what if after you take the first abortion pill, we gave you progesterone, would it reverse the effects of that first pill? Well, I'm glad you asked because that young lady that took the first pill and then had, went to bed that night and had a dream that she had her baby. She even felt the contractions. And she got up that morning and said, I, I messed up. I did the wrong thing. I shouldn't have took that pill. And she Googled, reversing my abortion. And she came across a hotline. That hotline connected her to a pregnancy center in Middle Tennessee. That pregnancy center connected her to a doctor that got her on progesterone. And guess what? The baby is alive and well today. So, so when an attorney general says, there are no data, there's nothing that shows this work, well, that's just plain nonsense. Actually, what we know is 60 to 70% of time, it does reverse it. We've seen it. And there are babies walking around today because their mom regretted taking that abortion pill and they got on progesterone and baby has been born. We know that. And so the state of Colorado, the state of California, and I'm telling you, other states are going to come, are now suing pregnancy centers and suing uh, organizations that work with pregnancy centers that would dare say, that would dare say taking progesterone, which is, again, natural, can possibly reverse an abortion. Now, why would they do that? This is where I have trouble at times when people say they're pro-choice. If you are pro-choice fully, and there is a way for a woman to counteract the for first abortion pill because she changed her mind and wants to make another choice, wouldn't a pro-choice person say, well, you should be able to do that? Well, one would think that, but maybe some of these folks aren't truly pro-choice. And, and, and when I hear folks say this is about women's health and women's empowerment, it doesn't sound very empowering to women to put them all in a room together like they're cattle and tell them to take an abortion pill. That doesn't sound very empowering. That isn't, I am woman, hear me roar. That is, hey, get in here in this room. We're going to give you a pill to end the life of your child. And if you're in a room full of other people, maybe you won't ask any questions. That's not women's health, and that's certainly not health care. It's not. I'm telling you, if a pregnancy center today put a bunch of women in a room and just simply gave them pregnancy tests, we would be sued and, and, and raked over the coals because that's not women's health and that's not health care. Yeah, it's not. It's not. That's not how you do medicine. And so it, it is a sad day that in the, the, 
the best country on the planet. We are so about efficiency that we are coercing women to take abortion pills in a room together. And then we are chastising them when they say, I, I, I made the wrong decision and I want to reverse this. And, and, and I could give you example after an example after example after example of moms that have done that, taken progesterone, and went on to have their baby. It doesn't always work. It doesn't always reverse the effects. But it's possible. And, and they've done studies. And look, there, there was a study done trying to prove that progesterone wouldn't work. And they had to stop the study because the folks that were having complications were the ones that, that took placebo and didn't take progesterone. So, so the outcome of that study was going in the direction they didn't want it to go. So the pro-abortion doctors stopped the study altogether. So, so if you're paying attention in the news today and you're seeing, well, what does this mean, abortion pill reversal? What is happening in Colorado? What is happening in California? Well, what's happening is a lot of nonsense because they don't truly know and then they haven't had conversations with women that have, in fact, reversed their abortion. Now, the sad truth is some of these folks in the abortion industry are now coming out and saying, well, just skip the first pill altogether. Just take the second pill that causes contractions. Just take that one. And just keep taking it until eventually you go into labor. That, that is what they're saying. Folks, that's not health care either. You see, we are, we are at a place in our current culture where, as I've said on the show multiple times, we are sacrificing future generations for the sake of ourselves. And, and, and that is anti the founding of this country. It's anti-biblical. It's certainly anti-biblical worldview. It's anti-gospel. Yet we continue down the path. It, it, it blows my mind that we can't look in the mirror and go, hey, folks, we, we got this wrong. We messed up. We messed up. And so as I, as I watched that video last week of the story of that young lady, and, and she was saying that it was almost as if the folks at the pregnancy center were angels sent to her, and now she's holding her baby. Like, you, you're not going to be able to tell them this doesn't work. You're not going to be able to tell that family that you can't reverse an abortion. Because they're literally holding their baby. And if it was up to the abortion industry, that baby would have never made it into society. And so these are why, these are things that matter to us and things we need to discuss and things we need to talk about. Because either life has value or it doesn't. And so as we, as we think through the next steps... And as we think through what is happening around our country, 
Look, look, when Roe was overturned, it did turn into a 50-state offensive. And so what is happening is in some of these states, this is what you're seeing. Then I heard from friends in Ohio, they got an amendment coming up, a state constitutional amendment on abortion. Now, now there will be some pastors that are like, look, separation of church and state, we don't talk about this, we don't talk about that. Folks, we have to talk about that. I'm a Christian first, but also if there is a piece of legislation that is going to go against my viewpoint in the biblical worldview and against life in the womb, I'm going to fight against that piece of legislation. And if I was a pastor, I would fight from the pulpit and I would encourage my congregants. Now you would say, well, well we, can't, we can't do that. No, we, we have to do that. You see, we've allowed the culture and a secular culture to tell us we must have a separation. Yet, Vice President Harris, President Joe Biden will go and speak inside of churches, progressive churches, on a Sunday morning to the congregation, specifically telling them and encouraging them to vote a certain way and to do a certain thing. We saw back during the pandemic what happened. They went out of their way to close churches. But keep those bars open. Keep those liquor stores open, but, but you better close. You better not meet on Sunday morning. You better not meet on Wednesday night. And so when we see what is happening in the state of Ohio or other states that are looking at constitutional amendments, we need the church to stand up. We need pastors that, that preach the whole counsel of God, that, that understand the inerrancy of Scripture. We need pastors to stand up and say, oh no, this is an issue that matters. And we need folks to get out and vote. The reason why we have a constitutional amendment in the state of Tennessee to protect life is because the church got engaged. Like, I need y'all to understand that. Pastors got engaged across the state of Tennessee. Shepherds led their flock, not to slaughter, but to celebrate the good ideas of God and protect life. And we need that in Ohio. Look, sometimes we find ourselves in moments of, well, but I, I don't want to you know, create conflict or I don't want people to come after us. Look, the folks that would do that are, are not viewing things from a biblical worldview. It's the same thing when, when congressmen and senators say, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to compromise here and compromise there. What, what ultimately happens when you compromise on good and evil, evil always triumphs, period. So don't compromise. We stand bold in the faith. We trust God is going to move and we're going to seek to protect life. And so I pray that the folks in Ohio, that preachers and pastors in Ohio would energize and, and encourage their flock to engage in the battle that's before us. It matters, and life is going to be protected if we can step in and do what we need to do. We'll talk more next time. Thanks. Thanks.